We can listen to the bird music while it warms up. <laughs> Can anybody see has it started recording yet on your end? I don't see any sign here. Okay, that sometimes happens. All right. Well, guys, good to see you. Welcome to uh, our Sunday um, <clears throat> uh, sing-along, where we generally um, uh, explore some question about the Dhamma and, and what. Uh, and Andre is, uh, you're actually living in Damasala now, and it was hot in, where were you, Mysore? No, I was in, uh, I was in South Goa. So, Goa, okay. Yeah. There, there's a big uh, monastery that's associated with Damasala in Mysore, but it's really hot sometimes. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Dhammasala actually is the home of, uh, and generally referred to as the Dalai Lama. Were you a student of his or are? Um, I've read a few books and I do some, I did some practices as well and some meditations. Um, oh, how many never, hours have you sat in his lap? Um, zero. Oh. No, okay. No, I haven't actually. It's very hard to to actually see him. Yeah, he's here nearby, but it's very hard to to actually see him. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people who get on the inside and know they're in the inside stay jealous and want to be in the inside by having an outside, and you're it. It's human psychology. But one of the things that I'd like to mention, and in fact, um, you kind of answered it because there's more than one kind of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. But when they mention Dhammasala, they're generally talking about uh, uh, the, the part of it that uh, is the uh, Dalai Lama. Uh, and so um, we've got a video here on our channel of uh, a visit between the Dalai Lama and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, where it is a short film, but it is extraordinarily telling for the Westerner because it solves a really, really important question of what's the difference between Mahayana and Theravada? And the answer is there is no difference. And that at the level that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uh, in southern Thailand and uh, the Dalai Lama, what they had in common is knowledge of the Dhamma. And can basically what we're talking about is, is that every culture, every culture has its own culture for many, many centuries, especially here in Asia. The Western culture was kind of really messed with uh, several hundred years ago. But in general, when Buddhism comes into a culture, it, it doesn't come in with a sword. It doesn't come in with fire. It, it comes in by seepage, I guess. It kind of seeps in and makes everything kind of more friendly. So most of the stuff that we see is Tibet, Tibetan, excuse me, Tibetan Buddhism that is different from Theravada is basically we're talking about Tibetan culture versus, in this regard, Thai culture. 
but in fact there's differences in the Sri Lankan culture and the uh, Myanmar or Burmese culture and in the Lao culture, but they're all referred to as kind of Theravada, though they don't use that word. Then in fact, I had a, a really, really, um, uh, gosh, warm, friendly relationship with a very, high, what I thought was a, a high regard monk, but he also was that way in the, uh, basically because of his, um, many years and experiences of being a chanter and so he was used all over the united states for all of the important things because he had already memorized long time ago every word of every important chant like a new building or something like that so he openly and commonly used the word henniana as if it did. The Westerners, they hear this distinction between Mahayana and Hinayana and kind of make a big deal out of it. And in fact, pointing fingers at each other. Oh, have you ever heard of that? That kind of put down that the word Mahayana uh, uses against the, uh, the Theravada by calling them Hinayana. And that, huh? Well, Can I have a bit of uh, context? I don't think everyone will know what Hinayana means, lesser vehicle. Mm -hmm. Mahayana means greater vehicle. So, I mean, but they're both kind of pointing towards emptiness or sunyata. That's the Actually, point. they're pointing towards boats. Boats? Boat, yeah. Uh, uh, not boat, which is spelled the same as boat, <laughs> but actually boats, like you get in this rowboat, you take your oars and you row crawl, crawl across the, the stream or you row across the lake. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. And you'll get there a whole lot faster if shawl. you wait, wait in line to get your ticket to get on that uh, uh, streamliner. And then the question is, well, in this kind of a vessel, this Mahayana, there are no oarmen. Let somebody else do the oar, and everybody sits in the passenger compartment, and nobody's in the engine room, nobody's in the pilot, uh, nobody's steering the place, and they're lucky if they ever leave the dock. Is another way of looking at that. That's kind of a joker way of, of looking at it. But in fact, both Theravada and Vajrayana, or Tibetan, have both qualities, which would be both the Dhamma, getting one's own mind together, and Sangha, there's the big boat. Only on this boat, this is full of nobles, noble friends. Let's get on the right boat. Let's, let's not get on the boat that uh, is, is going someplace that it's really hard to get to. Let's take an, an easy cruise. And so, um, having friends who can cooperate with each other is the idea of the Sangha and Mahayana does not have a, uh, um, let us say a right or a capture to that at all. That in fact, the whole point that I would like to make in, in big time, kind of my, uh, life force or point of view to, uh, to share with others is is not so much the joy of the Dhamma when it's well practiced, because I think that there's quite enough of us that have finally gotten that point and we've got a whole lot of happy campers laying around. 
But now the major point is, is that how can we in fact teach this Sangha, this community, this openness that goes across the boundaries that the Westerners see and the differences in the road between the way that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is dressed and the way that the Dalai Lama is dressed. And so I invite you to see that um, that video where the Dalai Lama calls Bhikkhu Buddhadasa his elder spiritual brother, which is just a kind of code word for yet another teacher. And so uh, if we can see that, then we can see that we can scatter the leaves of Tibetanism off of the screen. We can get down to see what the Buddhist teaching really was. And it's the same in Tibet than it is in Thailand. The teaching is the same, which is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's the whole show. Come out of it. Uh, and that you can do that in Dhammasala, or you can get all wrapped up in, well, what about this and what about that and what about the other thing? Because there's a whole lot of this and that's and other things that are associated with the Tibetans. If there's any place in where Buddhism is that is super duper overly rich with culture, it's Tibet. And they've got tonkas and they've got prayer wheels and they've got flags and they've got let's see all kinds of stuff with various statues and various deities and uh, sand mandalas and uh, uh, tonkas. But guess what? At Watsu and Milk, there is not just one copy of it, but four copies of one tonka, which is in fact the uh, Tibetan betrayal or uh, portrayal rather of Paticca Samupada, the 12 steps of dependent origination, which is being held up as a big giant circle uh, with the, the claws and the teeth of a bear uh, holding this thing up. And there's a whole lot of symbology in there, but it all keeps pointing back to this is the way that the mind works. And so um, I, I actually, uh, Andrew, uh, welcome you. That in fact, the more Tibetan it uh, uh, tidbits that you have to offer, they're quite welcome. No, it's just <clears throat> yeah, it's very um, uh, it's very fireworks. You know, it's very. Yeah, there's a it's, there, there's a lot of like you said, there's a lot of culture. There's a lot of like the there, there's so much associated with Buddhism here. And uh, and to me, that was actually a little bit causing a little bit of confusion. Because sometimes I feel especially a lot of Westerners here and a lot of people here that come to 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 places like this to Dalamsara. Um, I bet it's a madhouse now. The last time I was there was 1979 or something. <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty vivid, and sometimes it's almost uh, too vivid, where the underlying message can can be a little bit harder to to see underneath the culture, underneath the rituals, um, and. 
yeah, so that, that part is a little bit confusing. The message is the same, but the presentation is um, yeah, just it's it's like it's like Indian food versus you know versus like a bland British fish and chips, you know. All right, how about this? Indian food served at a high quality restaurant in downtown Bangkok is the best Indian food that I've ever had. All right. Why? Because they it's the Indians who came from India that were the chefs, but they got a hold of really good ingredients in Thailand. And so it's done. But back to the, the point is, is that when Westerners come in, they don't have the discernment. And so they take a scoop and all. They say all Tibetan Buddhism is Buddhism rather than about you know, 25% Buddhism and 75% Tibetanism. To where in Thailand, it's got a different ratio, but it's not in favor of the Dhamma. <laughs> and so um, there are ordinary people who have the ordinary beliefs. And when Buddhism comes in, they'll go to that temple too. There's a very interesting situation uh, that I know of in a particular neighborhood in, in Bangkok that there is, um, without a doubt, 100%, if you've ever been to four or five different Indian Hindu temples in India, you know without a doubt that's what this is. Ganesh is all around and all of that kind of stuff with a lot of green and blue paint. So, um, uh, and, and a lot of gold, gold leaf that's, that's posted. And guess what? Especially the Buddha days, but that temple is mobbed by Thai people who are considered and would consider themselves Buddhist. But just in case, because they don't really see that much of a difference. So the, the uh, I would say that that's true in Tibet also, that they don't know the difference really between what is culture and what is which religion and they're just all kind of the same thing as long as you're doing enough puja to feel good so that you can get over your misery of the day. And so um, the whole point of the teaching of the Buddha, though, is, is that the real point is not doing puja at some temple, but rather do the cleaning of the mind. That that's really what needs to be done. And when the mind has gotten cleaned out, then... Um, we're worthy of honor. We're worthy of respect. We're worthy of um, being listened to when the Dhamma is correct, when it's noble. And so uh, <coughs> this this is the way that we begin to practice is to let's start right off the bat by being the noble. Because we can already not just imagine it, we know exactly what it is to be noble which is basically to not give a flying rip about anything. We just don't care. Okay, we can watch a uh, Fox, we can watch CNN, uh, CNN, we can watch BBC, we can watch Daffy Duck. It doesn't matter when it doesn't affect us. We don't let that stuff come in and cloud the mind into would, shoulds and coulds and the way things it should be because then we've got a whole lot of work to do.
I mean, if the world was as broken as each one of you in your own mind thinks it is, you got a whole lot of work ahead of you before you can feel good. But if you can see the world is it's already okay, just like it is. Well, my work is done here. And all it really is is a change of attitude. And that's kind of a secret that the, that the inner core of monks don't want anybody to know. And yet it's still right across the cultures. That in fact, that, that video of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and the Dalai Lama is more telling than you would imagine in the beginning to know that that deep Dhamma, which is actually dangerous Dhamma, because our culture says, oh, you got to work. You can't just sit back and enjoy your life. You got to work. I'm saying it just like, in fact, Goenka says it. <laughs> you got to work. And so we've been trained into that mentality of having to work. What's the Buddha teaching here? Is this that that's dukkha, to get involved with and care about this, that, and the other thing. And all we have to do is start recognizing that really I can be happy with this without this, that, and the other thing. And so we begin to practice uh, in a way of our actions, begin to put an end to our actions so that we slow down, settle out, kind of enjoy life. Your choice, whether you whether be helter skelter or that in fact, um, uh, Andrew, uh, is he still on? No, I think he's gone. Um, he mentioned to me before he called that it would be short. So, uh, but he said that it's a madhouse in Dhammasala. Is that what he said? Was that the word? That's the word that I heard. But the Westerners there, huh? What did he say? Did he say madhouse? I remember saying it was too vibrant. Perhaps he did say it. All right. Well, that's the indication. But here's what what happens is, is that any time that some guru or other gets famous, then a whole lot of people who are in a great deal of need. I mean, how bad? Think about it for yourself. How badly do you need anything for you to drop what you're doing and move to Dhammasala? just for the hope of a glimpse of the Dalai Lama as if he's some magical icon. All right. Those kind of people, you could say, in fact, are mental patients. They're, they're just in a different hospital. But in fact, that's often the case that the, the Wad in Tainan winds up being just another mental institution and they don't actually send them off to a real nut house until they're completely um, uh, out of control, which I've seen just one time. In fact, the story is, is that it was Taui Pong was his name and that he so loved Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa that when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's tapes or Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was speaking publicly, Taui Pong would get a bucket and a ladle or a, a wood a gong or anything like that and start beating it. And he just annoyed people. We couldn't get him to stop. 
<laughs> and so um, after a while, uh, I actually found out by going with them that Thailand does have a mental institution system. They just reserve it for the, the case where no one in the community can handle them. And so other than that, you can understand how a place like Dhammasala gets overrun by every Buddhist nutcase from the West is hanging out there. And there's an awful lot of Asians that are ready to uh, take advantage of them. And so there's an awful lot of extra dukkha that happens in places like that without people really quite understanding the dynamics of what's going on. But when we see it at the microcosm, like I've seen at the watch, we can recognize that when it gets big time, it's like Damasala is probably the craziest place in the world. <laughs> it's got the whole world's puzzle of really, really weirded out Buddhist. So, um, when the teaching is the same, when the noble dhamma is is there and that's that's kind of a question of why isn't the noble dhamma getting out in tibet the way that it's gotten out in in thailand perhaps we could say the issue has to do with that the dalai lama's position of being in politics was such that he couldn't teach the noble dhamma it would have been too much and so he had to kind of leave it but he has done some major reforms um, one of the reforms that he's made was uh, that he said do you know anything about the toku system where they come back as and, and are known as kids and are raised as the next Dalai Lama or Pachin Lama or whatever like that Dalai Lama has announced that he's not coming back And I congratulate him for that. Because the reality, he's not coming back. But that's part of the Tibetan culture. Been there for seven or eight hundred years, so I hear. Uh, this Lama and that Lama with a lot of different little stories. One of them was is that one of these guys was, he got really uh, kind of out of hand as he was getting older. And uh, one of the things he would he would do is he'd go around and point at various pieces of furniture. Oh, I remember that piece of furniture and that like that. And they would giggle behind his back that that stuff's nowhere near as old as the person that we pinned him to be. He couldn't possibly remember that piece of furniture. It didn't exist for hundreds of years before. <laughs> and so um, that that whole system is all the Tibetan culture and Thai's got some really strange cultures around that kind of stuff too. But there is more to Buddhism than that. Everybody here knows that, that there's this cultural aspect. The culture was there right from the beginning. In the sense that, well, who do you think were the first students of the Buddha and where did they come from? So they brought all their beliefs right in the door with them as they became bhikkhus. 
and that there's been that element all along, but it happened really big time in the time of Ahsoka, where it became uh, royally supported, and so many then people joined that they didn't have a chance to get everybody educated. And that's kind of what's happened with Western Buddhism, is that so many Buddhists have come with a lot of magical beliefs that they picked up and gotten from other people, and they really haven't heard the Noble Dhamma. And for that reason, uh, that's by far the larger element. But in fact, uh, uh, Jerry and I have been talking about this for, what, three, four sessions. That the... uh, uh, the beliefs that are held historically are so deeply buried into our psyche that it's almost into our DNA. Magical thinking somehow seems to be built into the human brain right into the DNA. It's almost like an underlying tendency or an instinct in and of itself. Where all the kids, when they get lonely in their brand new own bedroom, they start imagining what? Bears in the closet, Hmm. ghosts under the beds, and all of this kind of stuff is what people normally begin to do all on our own. Humans are extraordinarily magically believing kind of things, just like Johnny with his little truck. He's going zoom, 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 back and forth, and that's what's really happening. But in his mind, He's driving an actual truck. It's a big thing. He's got a big imagination. And we grow up using that imagination. We just point it in this and that direction. But mostly, people live in an imaginary world. They don't want to live in the real world, because the real world uh, seems, on its surface, to be disinteresting. That the magical world is kind of better somehow. If we if we could only have it. And it's better to have something and be satisfied with that than to dream for nothing and never get it. And so that's basically the teaching of the Buddha right there. The dukkha is magical thinking. And dukkha naroda is stop thinking magically and start seeing the things the way they actually are. Yes, Pedro, go ahead. You got your hand up. Yes, uh, yes. The fact, uh, uh, in my experience with the magical thinking, is simply that uh, uh, I've come to understand that, uh, like all this tendency of magical thinking, was just a distraction. You know, because maybe if you want to go uh, straight to a point of, uh, you know, like. Uh, uh, understanding the Dharma, uh, successing the Dharma, and so on. Like at first, uh, uh, magical thinking is like you understand that it's only a distraction because if I have to go from point A to point B, uh, if I'm thinking magically, I will never get there. So, like all the distractions just crumble away in favor to proceed on on the path. You know, otherwise it's just a distraction because I can think. Uh, uh, for hours about uh, if I was uh, some some uh, king in my past life, but doesn't serve for the purpose of uh, going uh, going further in the Dharma. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's exactly right. 
that um, that when we can stay in the present moment, that's all we really need. It's good enough to be here now. And so we become satisfied with being in reality because that's all we were ever going to get anyway. Because I'm not going to get what I want. That in fact, uh, Scott the other day used the, the, uh, the term uh, butthurt rage. And I thought that word was so funny because I'd been there, done that, and I know it. I have had butthurt rage. And I never got any satisfaction. I never got even. So I just had to get over it. Okay. And not ever give getting even is part of the magical thinking that we have that I will get even. And we never get our revenge. That's in fact a cycle or a circle. A samsaric circle. To where A hurts B, B hurts A, A hurts B, B hurts A, A's family hurt B, B family start hurting a few C's and a whole lot of B's and around and around they go. And um, the, the way that it can stop is for somebody to wake up to the damage that they're doing trying to gain revenge or comp is basically just competition. Because we want to get the pride. We want to feel good about being better than other people. Why should we want to be better than other people? Oh, the only people who want to be better than other people are the ones who are already behind themselves. And they just want to make sure that they're somewhere in the middle of the line. That I'm not the last guy in line. Do you know what I'm talking about? That at least I'm better than, than him. And the whole idea is to uh, get out of line. <laughs> Even if they don't want you to get out of line, just get out of line. You don't have to stand in that line comparing yourself to this person and that person. That in fact, the line is not going where we think that it's going. We've been lied to about that. And our magical thinking keeps us believing that the line goes someplace that we want to go. But right now, we're just in line. Does anybody feel like that that's their life? That they're kind of standing in line, waiting for something to happen? And it doesn't? Sounds miserable. Pardon? Sounds miserable. Sorry, who, who said that? Sounds miserable. Sounds mi Oh, yes, yeah. it does. Well, guess what? We all do it. To one degree or another. But we all do these things. And that the whole point of Anapanasati is for us to begin to hear how screwed up the human mind has gotten with our society. That it's not really your fault. You didn't. You didn't do it. You were. I mean, you were fed this stuff when you, as a kid, and just took it in. But now we're going to pull it all out and examine it, and keep what we like, and throw the rest out. And that's what we do with that issue of seeing if this is an unwholesome thought, and throw it out. And we keep doing that until all we have left is really wholesome thoughts, one after another after another. And that's really 
very clearly written in the suttas, number 117 and, and number 19 are the two that put these two together about what's a wholesome thought and what's an unwholesome thought. And we keep whacking those unwholesome thoughts when we see them, throw them out, or better still, we can think of getting the mind in line. Um, but that in fact, the reason that we have a life that we feel is kind of noisy and confusion is the fact that we ourselves are not in harmony. And so part of the practice of getting the mind into wholesome states means that we begin to see how things really are. And so we begin to get in tune with reality. Begin to get into harmony with nature. Begin to get part of that's the part of the path that they talk about at one moment, which is one of the jokes about the Dalai Lama. You've heard. He's going to the hot dog stand and asking the hot dog vendor to make me one with everything. Well, that's what that means. It means, please let me find a way that I can harmonize and be in tune with reality. So that we can just relax. Nothing's dangerous, no problems, no worries. Everything is cool. Now, immediately what happens, or not immediately, but after a few minutes, a thought like, well, what's next come up? And the answer to those what's next thoughts is, is that we have just entered into a hindrance. We've actually lost our satisfaction because we're now looking into the future. What's next? And so we can say, oh, never mind. This is good enough. We don't care about what's next. This is next. And this is next. Next, ha next has happened fast. <laughs> and so just coming back to being in that moment where everything is okay, everything is fine. And with that, you don't need to do anything or go anywhere. You just kind of enjoy your life. Up to the point that you ask, what's next? And then we fall out of it and have to remind ourselves, well, nothing is next. Now is all we get. What you see is what you get. What you experience, that's all there is. Everything else was your own magical thinking, which we've decided to come out of. That's what perception uh, is in the um, Paticca Samapada teaching, is the concocting portion of the mind that concocts the the thing that actually impacts us which may not actually be what's in reality it's just something that we made up thinking that it's reality the example of that is time food definitely you know being being offered food that i don't really uh like so much um usually comes from a perception from childhood or something but just being with the the taste and the raw sensory experience, there's nothing bad about it. It's just as it is. Oh, you're talking about um, uh, eating the food that we uh, ate when we in our childhood. Or um, certain foods. Eating eating a food that you thought in the past you didn't like. Oh. But you, <laughs> in, if you just reinvestigate it as it is, 
coming out of these um, past experiences and perceptions, then there's nothing wrong about it. I just did that this month with cauliflower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that cauliflower taste is there, but it's good. <laughs> Rather than Nikki, it's, it's, and I haven't had cauliflower for years and years being in Thailand, you can understand why. <laughs> but in any case, um, the whole point is, is that I didn't like the cauliflower, so my imagination, my uh, view of it was a childish one that I collected in, in childhood. I didn't like it, and so I kept, I don't like it for my whole life, rather than investigating and find out why did I say that I don't like it when in fact there's nothing wrong with it. But we could do that with more than just cauliflower. We can begin to investigate everything that we don't like and start recognizing, I don't have to go around not liking anything. I can just kind of let things be the way that they are. I can take my own magical beliefs and, and feelings of liking and not liking out of the mix and just be content and satisfied with the way things are. It's a very simple teaching, but we have to practice it over and over and over again until we get used to doing it. And then we keep doing it over and over again because there's nothing left to do. <laughs> and so this is why the whole concept of Sotapan, Sotagami, Aragami, and Arahat, the only reason that those features exist is to do with the dedication of the student. How into the Dhamma is he? Because everybody's in a process. I mean, the first time that you heard about it was probably years before you ever did anything about it. But the more you get into it and the more you actually enjoy it because you can see for, um, how actual beneficial it actually is, then you want to do it more and more. You want to get immersed into the Dhamma. And that's the path that we get on is, is that the more Dhamma we practice, the better we like it. And the, the better we like it, the like, um, imagine that you had five or six different foods or dishes and that you got used to eating those and you really, really like that. Why not just stay with those few dishes and not have to go out and get anything else to eat. But this is what we're eating. We can continue to eat that. Well, that same kind of mentality, as long as I have really delicious food, why should I go experimenting? It might, in fact, not be tasteful. And so we begin to limit ourselves in, in that way. This is part of what I mean by the action that comes to the end of action. Since we're really, really satisfied with what we've got, and especially because most of us, when by the time we've gotten kind of a little older, most of the places that there are is to go, I've already been there and done that. I've been to Damasala. I don't care what it's like now. I knew what it was like in 1979, and <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> I know it's exactly the same as it was, only they got about 10 times as many people with the same mental problems as they had there then. 
<laughs> and so we begin to have that kind of attitude about going places and doing things. Been there, done that. The Buddha even talks about it in, in one of the suttas when he's talking about um, that though they, some will revile you and some will revere you, but though they revile you on that account, there's no dejection of the heart. And when they revere you on that account, there's no elation of heart. And why is that? Because I've been there, done that. I was bullied when I was in school. I know what it's like. Been there, done that. It's still nice to still nice to show someone a smile though right if they <laughs> you know give you a compliment oh but, I mean, sure ideally absolutely ideally, in fact you yeah. you owe it to them mm. in fact you can congratulate them for their wisdom and intuition Unless they're congratulating for something you know is actually not the case. <laughs> yeah. But more than likely, that's not the case. More than like, oh, yes. But there's no elation of heart. There's just an elation of the lips. Of the <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking if, if you're already there in the right place, then it should come just naturally anyway, just a slight yeah, thing. Right. So we, we're, we're talking about this actually most specifically in this case, because every budding Dhamma teacher is going to have this. Every time that you get into the Dhamma, you're going to have a whole bunch of ordinary people that are going to revile you. But those who really listen, they're going to revere you. But eventually you get used to it. Yeah, so what? Been there, done that been revered, been reviled, happened my whole life, been there, done that. But we can take that attitude, then been there, done that, and add it to many, many things, many places. The kind of things like a Lamborghini. Well, I've been there enough and done enough of it to not want one now, you know. I've had enough motorcycles and enough hot cars, enough already. Right, you got your hand up. Um, yes, there uh, is there no elation because you are already elated uh, to, the, to the top, or is there no elation because you don't care about the comment about uh, someone giving you uh, praise? Um. Actually, I don't care which causes the other, but you can figure out that process for yourself because you already know the story is that it's just a story to be enjoyed. You don't have to dissect it or change the story. You could just enjoy the show. When we have that kind of mentality, then when those thoughts about wanting it to be different than it is come up, we can say, ah, I see you. This, this thing is already playing it out. In fact, wanting something that we don't have at whatever level that we do it, <laughs> at whatever level that we do it, 
we can um, actually say that it's a form of prayer, that we want something that we don't have, and we want something or someone or somehow for it to become true. Magical thinking, and when we have the magical thinking that we've got actually someone in, in charge here, we've got someone that I can suck up to, to make him fix it. So it becomes actually then more like formalized prayer. God, get Aunt Susie out of the hospital. And then the next day, she dies. Well, wait a minute, God, I prayed, you know, I'm supposed to get my way here. And um, have you ever heard of uh, George Garland? He's got the joke of that God's got a plan. He's had a plan for a long time. He's had that plan for so long that they've got old books talking about his plan. He knows what his plan is, and here you are in modern times wanting him to change his plan just for you. So, in, in that regard, anything that we want that we don't get, be careful about what that wanting does to us because it might put us back into the magical thinking of childhood. Rather than recognizing, I don't have it and I don't need it. I've been there, done that. And we can begin to get that attitude about everything, anything. Which is a whole lot better for anything than to want it, want it badly and not get it. Whatever it is. Promotions, new shoes, anything that we want, either material or um, I've talked before on looking for love in all the wrong places. So we're looking actually for love in a way, which is uh, we're putting in the, the place of materialism. But we can look for love in relationships. We can look at for love by sucking up to a deity. There's all kinds of magical ways that we can look for love. But the easy way out is to love yourself and to feel okay. You're all right already. You don't have to beat yourself with all the rules that you've set up and then feel like you need somebody else to love you. No, this is your job. Nurture yourself. Make yourself your own best friend. Become really close and that's the unification of mind. The mind will become unified when we get really close and tight with ourselves, especially the guy who makes the rules and the guy who's got to follow the rules. Those are the two we need to make friends so that the rule maker becomes a nurturer instead. So when we do that, that's exactly the same thing as having one wholesome thought after another and it's also the whole quality of the Eightfold Noble Path. What we're doing, wake up, look at what we're doing. Ah, Andrew, good to see you back. Sorry about that, guys. So we were actually talking about um, setting the mind free one thought at a time which is the actual teaching. If you uh, 
you can dissect that film because it's uh, quite a number of minutes. Uh, the actual topic that uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and the Dalai Lama talked about was precisely this issue of Paticca Samuppada or how the mind actually works in the sense that instead of actually seeing what's real, we make a story up. We concoct something. We get concepts about it, and all, almost always those concepts that we make about it have some rules that don't really need to apply. And so that's where the magical thinking comes in, is, is that we're actually applying rules that don't no, no longer apply, but we've got them. And so the rule systems that we use for our thinking process is, is like the scaffolding that eventually builds the structure or the, the full-blown concept of our, our worldview that we have. And when we recognize that, hey, we can change that. We can change the worldview by looking directly at what the world actually is, and we don't have to take an opinion about it. But in fact, that's the most beautiful part of actual right noble viewing is, is that we don't take an opinion. We don't build a concept about it because we know the concepts are going to get old. And then we rely upon an old concept and we're not in reality anymore. It's better just to see reality as it is over and over again. Rather than trying to say that I saw reality one time, I know all about it. <laughs> in a way, you could say that the potholes of reality have a way of forming. You better watch where you're going down this road. You can't assume that you know what's there just because you've been down that road before. It's still, you got to watch where you're going. And so this is the quality of, uh, of um, right, noble viewing that we're actually coming out of the concepts, like I know where I'm going. I can eat a hamburger and listen to my cell phone and fuss at the kids in the back seat because I know where I'm going, except the car is not a horse. The car is not going to go where you think it's going to go. It's going to go where you're actually steering it to go. And so in that regard, just like a car, we need to learn to steer our life so that we can stay on the road without winding up in our own ditch. Do we start watching where we're going? But this is the real teaching for the Paticca Samapada is you think that you know where you're going, you're going to wind up in a ditch instead. But if you keep watching where you're going, you'll probably wind up someplace you really like. And this is both in the Tibetan and in uh, the Theravadan. But in fact, at one time, I was so uh, deluded as to first think that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was the only one who understood the Noble Dhamma. And then I began to find out uh, over a period of time and in various ways, he was part of an old boys network. And so when I was in the States, I talked about the Noble Dhamma to uh, a young Lao monk, and he told his uncle, which was one of the senior monks in Denver, and I got invited to Denver because it was a great big surprise how they're thinking is can an old fat Westerner actually understand the noble teachings of the Buddha? And here I am looking them in the face. You don't know Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. How could you possibly understand the noble teachings of the Dhamma? 
And so it was kind of a wake up to recognize that the noble teaching of the Dhamma is widespread, but it's kind of held under wraps because, like I said, it's got a little bit of danger to it. The monks have got to be special and sacred. They can't be seen by the community as a bunch of layabout, lazy do-nothings. And all they do is sit around and giggle and laugh and enjoy their lives. Why should we feed that crowd? Oh, no, we've got to be sacred. We've got to to be special, you know. But that's only because of the, um, uh, the attitude of the lay people. And so we can actually do both sides of that. We could be what is expected of us on the outside and be a happy camper on the inside and in the back of the the what and so uh all of this actually means in the way of going back to you got to learn how to steer and drive your your vehicle on the road that you're on are you on the road to sit in the front of the what where all your own display or is this the road in the back of the what where you've got more freedom you can go back there and do donuts. <laughs> so, uh, the the Tibetan and the Thai have a lot in common, and petite and the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path and the teaching of Paticca Samuppada, and actually the quality of the jhanas. That you could say that the Mahasi or the Mahayana did not actually miss out on the Theravada teachings. But there is one thing that we can look at and say that basically the difference had to do with the time when they were trying to find, figure out what were the monks' rules. And one group says, oh, these are the rules of the Buddha. We got to keep them all. Others are saying, no, we can get rid of that rule and we can get rid of this rule. And others are saying, no, we got to keep those, but we can get rid of this one, that one, and the other one. And so it was because of when Buddhism began to change its neighborhood, it was required to adapt. And as times changed in ancient India, the monks had to adapt. And here they are with all of these rigid rules. In fact, there, there's one of the most ridiculous rules that is in the Padmanabha monk is that monks are supposed to, to take a bath only once a fortnight, once every two weeks. Why is that? Because it's a drought when the Buddha made that rule and he died before the, the, uh, the rule was rescinded. And so, uh, guess what? Do you think the monks in Thailand abide by that rule? Think about it. If you know Thailand, the hot uh, uh, climate with lots and lots of water, I mean, if there's anything that Thailand has, it's water. Big rivers, dikes, all kinds of uh, canals, and the whole, I mean, it's, a rice, it's one of the biggest rice-producing countries. So, the answer to that is, no, the monks wash the way that they've always washed. In fact, the monks uh, and the, the lay people, too, take two, three, four baths a day. That's part of the culture. And so that rule is completely ignored to the point that it's actually been forgotten about it. 
It's a, it's a fat old Westerner who says, yeah, I see this one. I'm going to practice this one. Nobody enjoyed the fact that I only watched once every two weeks. That was not a good rule to follow. I stopped following it. But while I was following it, wasn't I proud of myself? <laughs> Stinky, but proud. Yes. So um, we can, we can say then that this is the basic difference between the Mahayana and the Theravada is the Theravada are still delusional about their set of rules. And the Mahayana are free enough to say we've changed the rules to fit the situation. But when the Westerners come in, they don't want to rechange the rules to fit the situation. Now they want to take it hold hog of either Theravada or Mahayana and start a war between the two of them that actually doesn't exist. That Mahayana and Theravada in Asia, there is no division. And that one of the really interesting places that that exists is in um, Vietnam. After the end of the Vietnam War, during the middle of the 70s, about the same time that Saigon's name was changed to Ho Chi Minh City, they actually, because the Theravada was associated with that area of the southern Vietnam around um, Saigon. But the best rest of the country was Mahayana already. And in order to make peace, the, the government ordered that they become friends, which actually the monks were quite willing to do. It was the lay people who had a bunch of trouble with it. And so years later, I wind up in the United States in several Vietnamese watts, uh, one in Boston, another one in, in Charlotte, really close to the one in Charlotte. Um, where there was, this is such a joke, there was one, there were two monks there. One was ordained as Mahayana in the north, but he had traveled south and started wearing the orange robes of the Theravada. And now he makes it to the United States as a Mahayana that's dressed as a Theravada. And guess who the other monk in that uh, what was? One who had uh, ordained as Theravada and was dressing as Mahayana. That's how close they are in uh, Vietnam. And I could see that in the, not just this one temple, but in other temples. The Mahayana made no distinction between themselves and the Theravada. And the Theravada made no distinctions. That in fact, we did a whole lot of stuff together because there wasn't enough monks to go around in North Carolina. There were far too many lay people <laughs> dying, actually. And so a lot of the communications that we did among the groups was because of funerals, to have enough monks to do a funeral. So uh, I'm very fortunate to have been around so that I can tell stories about this, so that people in the West can get over their sectarianism. It's the Western mind that's sectarian. Not the Buddhist. I see you, Jerry. I see you smiling and laughing on that one. <laughs> We're big on that. We're big on that in, in, in these parts, yes. Big on sectarianism. <clears throat> yeah, it's part and parcel of the West. I mean, I mean, France and, and Germany are right next door to each other. They've been at each other's throats for how many centuries? <laughs> Yes, Martin, go ahead.
off. Turn the mic on. Um, on. Okay. Yes. Can hear. No, in fact, I'm just saying bye bye and thank you all. Sorry for that. Yes. Yes. It is. It is kind of getting old. Uh, this this talk. Uh, uh, Andre, you have missed the middle part of it. Uh, do you have any questions or anything to add before we go? Um, actually, while we're on the topic, I was wondering about the Tibetan, the sort of the vow of the Bodhisattva and the. You know, I'm not going to get enlightened until all the beings are enlightened. You're and damn right. Absolutely. I vow that everybody's going to get their butt kicked right into heaven before I go myself. That's the whole right. show. Absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise, right. you can't teach. That, in fact, those who go in come back out to teach. Actual arahats don't make good teachers. At best, you'll get a one-liner occasionally from them, and other than that, they're just going to go back to leaving you alone and hope you do to them, because they don't care about you as a student. They're too far gone. And it's okay for someone to become an air hot in their old age. I've, I've got my plans. <laughs> but meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, a good teacher has to be on top of the situation. He's got to know the community, and he's got to give them some fire. It's my job to give enthusiasm as well as information. Because you could get enough information from the books. You'll just be reading the wrong information at the wrong time, and it won't do you any good. But you can get the information if you're diligent about it. You can get it from a book. But the book's not going to set you on fire. That's what a good teacher's job is. To get you enthusiastic about the Dhamma, saying, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can get my mind together. Yeah, I can't have wholesome thoughts. I can do this. That's what the Eightfold Noble Path is all about, is changing that attitude, that Sama Sankapa, that, that intention of mind from being um, a victim in our lives relying upon other people, needing this, needing that, needing the government to do this and that, wanting this and that kind of thing, wanting things we don't have in the way of winding up praying for it in some way. And when we recognize, oh, guess what? I've already got all I need right now. I don't have to want anything. I'm good to go. What else is the yeah, so I'm good to go already. That's the winner's attitude. The change from I'm a victim of my own. <laughs> what do I say? My own rules. So if I change all of those rules, I'm no longer a victim of those rules. Now I'm actually the boss of those rules. Come a boss to your own life. But you have to remember that because those, those rules are easy just to bring them back in and let them run the show. So it's better, you could say it is better then to stop being instinctual and start being wise. Start looking at where you're going rather than assume everything's going to work out okay. And start changing those thoughts one at a time. Having wholesome thoughts. One at a time. Because the thoughts operate with the feelings together. They're intertwined as part of the Anapanasati is to recognize the mental conditioner, which is right there in the feeling section. 
So the feelings condition the mind and the mind condition the feelings. So if we can condition the mind into a happy, joyous state, we'll feel joyous and happy. And when we feel joyous and happy, that's where that feeling of being a winner, I can, in fact, control my life. And so we're talking about the way that we do things in Petitya Samupada, so we don't wind up in suffering, we, don't, we wind up in joy. Because we're watching where we're going. Pedro, your turn. Go for it, man. Yes, no, I it was... Uh... I would like to make a joke before I, I have to go, which is uh, the part of uh, learning how to drive uh, is to realize, hey, it's actually, it's actually me that is driving right now. <laughs> we think other people drive us. <laughs> if you understand that uh, it's also it's you who drives, then it's part of getting uh, learning how to, how to do it. <laughs> yes. We get used to being driven around and told what to do when we're kids, and we sometimes never get out of it. And so we keep being thinking that we're being driven around, and that's why we get into so many accidents, because we're not watching where we're going. We assume everything's going to be okay, and then some higher power, the magical thinking is back, right? So the whole idea then is to wake up, look at what you're doing, make a change here, and congratulate yourself. This is the Eightfold Noble Path of the Buddha. It's easy to do one time. It's easy to do a second time. And if you keep practicing at the 20,000th time, it will still be easy and fun. Then the 100,000th time. But as soon as you ask what's next after that, you're back to square one again. Never mind, start again. And just come back to everything's okay right now. This is good enough. My thoughts are good enough. Go ahead, get, get Jerry. Uh, well, just yes. say bye to everybody. Sorry, bye to everybody. See you bye -bye. on the next call. Yes, Jerry. No, I was just. Um, I'm just going to, to throw throw a little spanner into the works. Um, Please. Give you a it's yes. About time. <laughs> uh, you say, you say, you you say. Let's not um, do what's next. But if you don't do what's next, how do you follow the twelve steps of Anapana, sixteen steps of Anapanasati? Ah. I mean, you got to go to the. You got to go. You know, you got you got the pity. You got the sukha. Okay, what's next? What's next? You have to think there's something next. There no, 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 no. Hear me out. The answer to that is one by one as they occur. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can do that in the here now with what receives your, what hits your eyes, what hits your ears, what hit, what thoughts you're having, etc. Like that. Whatever hits your senses. Or if you're sitting in meditation in whatever state you are in, it's not what's next. The answer is it will present itself. What's what's next is not what we decide or something that's written in a book. It's whatever occurs next according to Petitya Samupada. That whatever happens, I'm ready for it. 
So are you saying that one is to sit and say, right, I am I'm sitting here, breathing in, I fully experience sukha, breathing out, I fully experience sukha. So training myself, like the book says, so I just carry on doing that until the next thing turns up. Like I will know, I will know, um, I will know uh, what am I going to do next? I'm going to quiet. Okay, so doubt, doubt comes in. Yes. Conditioner, and I'm going to quieten that down. Now, well, you're why saying, quieten it down unless it shows itself? Why should you go looking for something that's not there to quieten it down? Because it said a book about this is what's next. Instead, when anxiety comes up, let's quieten it down. Let's play with that as an object. I'm talking about in the middle of in the middle of um, of an actual sitting practice, a, 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 a right. sit of and, and, and you're doing it all by the numbers. Yep. Right. And let's come out of doing it by the numbers and do it the easy way instead. The easy way is to keep back coming back to everything is okay, no problem. Yes, Marcus, um, go ahead. What I, what I actually thought you were going to say, which has been good, helpful advice to me, is that it's not so straightforward, it's not so linear. It's more, you said it's more like a tango or a waltz. It's going mm -hmm. back and forth, back and forth. This might show up. And and um, when that piece of furniture is about to be in the mind, mm -hmm. even though it's in the third tetrad, you can start with gladdening the mind. It doesn't have to start off with breathing in long. Um, you can still, I think you can still do it like that, but exactly. you know, you'd be flexible fact, with it. In fact, what you're talking about is that the sequence of events is in the um, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path and then also eventually into the Sambo Jhana, that the sequence of events is not in the Anapanasati Sutra. It's not laid out as sequence of events. It's laid out like an encyclopedia, not a novel. And that it's, it's uh, let us say that it's cataloged with a really, really strange catalog system. You know, like the Dewey Decimal System for and uh, for nonfiction, et cetera, like that. Okay, so it's got it cataloged then as body, feeling, mind, and mind objects. And that you could also say that it's kind of um, a downhill in each one of them. So you start here in the first and go down. You start here in the second and go down. You start here in the third and go down. You start here in the fourth and go down. Um, and that what the reason I'm saying that is because the more advanced part of the practice is in the second half of each of the tetrads in the sense that we start with the breathing, watching the body breathe long. Eventually we go into like Goenka's retreats, go into seven days of then scanning, which what really what we're doing here is getting experience of the whole body as it's breathing. 
And the reason that we're doing that is to find attentions, to find the anxieties, to find uh, the nicks and pains and whatever like that, coming to the conclusion of the stage four is the body's relaxed. Now, we can mm -hmm. also do that in the sense that the first thing in the Vedana is, is that we have to, uh, and this pretty well far, the Vedana actually comes later in the game, but when it does come chronologically the way that it um, is, that we deal with the sukha and the pity, and after we gain control of our feelings, that's when we can see the, uh, the body con uh, mind uh, feeling conditioners, so that then we can settle them down, which is actually the middle part of Paticca Samapada, but we've got to be able to control the feelings first. So now we go to the next part about the mind, and we start off with investigating the minds, investigating the states of mind, investigating all of the stuff that, that the mind is composed of, and the step 10 of Anapanasati then is gladdening the mind in the sense of gladdening the mental states. And then the second half of it is both the uh, unification of the mind and the liberation of the mind. So you can see there that parts of the Eightfold Noble Path are actually mentioned in the Anapanasati Sutta, especially in uh, step, uh, steps 11 and 12. Mm -hmm. okay. And those are a little bit later in, in the practice. But it, chronologically, what we're doing in this moment is getting the mind into the wholesome state, doing that gladdening the mind over and over and over again until we gladden the feelings. We keep talking ourselves into feeling good. We keep talking it over and over again, changing unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts until we get a good stream of wholesome thoughts going. This is right there is the way that it's taught in the uh, uh, great, great 40, Sutta number 117, which is actually a big explanation of the Eightfold Noble Path. So long as you're trying to go according to some series of events that are stated in the Anapanasati Sutta, you're going to be just as confused as those who try to uh, do it according to the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Mahayana, uh, not the Mahayana, the... Um, uh, Mahasi method. But if we practice it according to the Eightfold Noble Path and, this, and the way that that's set up, now we recognize that we use the body and the feelings, uh, excuse me, the mind together to get the body feeling good, relaxed, getting the mind feeling good and relaxed, and then the feelings will feel good and relaxed. The sukha. And then... Mm -hmm. We come to the point of view of I can do this, which is the elation, and we begin to recognize how good we can make ourselves feel because we're practicing what's the top. The top is absolute top-notch success. You're the king of the hill. You're the king of your own world. Everybody's an emperor of their own pile of dirt. But why do we all feel like that we're buried under our pile of dirt? Why can't we sit right on the top of our own pile of dirt and be the emperor of our own pile of dirt? Be the king of our own hill. Be your own boss. Let's get some mojo going here, guys. You're in charge of your life. Look at where you're going. Ain't nobody else looking at where you're going. Only you can do that. 
And the car is not going to do it for you. You're going to have to watch where you're going because you're the boss. We take on full responsibility. That's what the second noble truth is really all about. Is that all the suffering and all the sorrow and all the pain and all the misery you've ever had is because you weren't watching where you were going. You went right after that hot, shiny object and you stubbed your toe. That's that second noble truth, wanting things that we don't have and we do it ignorantly. We're not watching where we're going. So the whole point of the Eightfold Noble Path is to wake up as often as we can and look at where we're going as best we can. And pretty soon we get pretty good at it. And then we recognize that we're pretty good at this. We give ourselves congratulations. You can do this. Then you begin to have that lion's roar. I can do this. I am a good enough human being. I do belong in this human race. I am up to standards. What standards? The standards of no standards at all. And I'm up to that standard. And so that's the way we practice is in accordance to the Eightfold Noble Path. And when the mind gets this way, this is what we call the unification of mind. Because we've got that mojo, we've got that energy, we've got that viewing, the looking, the gladdening of the mind, all of that stuff, we've got it in gear and we know it. And so that brings upon that unification of the mind, which means that you don't want anything. You're good to go just as you are. You don't want anything at all. If you don't want anything, then what kind of morality are you going to have? You're going to go around killing people? Not a chance. Because you don't, you don't want anything bad enough to hurt anybody to get it. And so morality actually is the outcome of the unification of mind, not the cause. So there's another cause and effect. So we got to get the cause and effects lined up. And when we do it according to the Anapanasati Sutta, we get confused about what's the cause and what's the effect because we're, we're, we're doing it in, in a catalog order rather than in a chronological order. Well, you go with the Eightfold Noble Path, you got the chronological order. And that ends up to, well, where do we go from here? What's next? The answer of that is right there. Never mind. This is okay. Because you could say that the unwholesome thought is what's next. And the answer is, I don't care. I can handle it. And then something else does come next. And then we can handle that. It's easy. It really is easy. Jerry, your mic is really noisy right now. If you speak, it'll probably get quiet. It can probably be what? If you speak, you see the microphones when you are, when a mic is open and it's got no sound at all, the microphone will raise its own volume. Software does that kind of stupidities, and then you've got a background noise that's louder. But if you speak, all of a sudden it'll reset itself, which I saw it just do. Did anybody else see what I was talking about? Just happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize my machine was that sophisticated. Oh, yes, it's AI right. is more intelligent than you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wouldn't and be humans difficult. humans don't like that. But yes, this laptop is far smarter than I am. I mean, it's got hundreds of movies on it that I don't remember. I've got to go watch it again. 
but the computer knows, remembers that movie perfectly. Down to every word, every letter, every pixel, it remembers. No human being is as good as your average laptop. I think we ought to take the laptops to the temple and put them on the altar and worship them. Because well, they're we so much better. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> we spend more time with them than anything else. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't want to say anything more at this stage. So. Uh, All right. Well, we'll, we'll okay. We'll, we'll catch. We'll catch the next stage out of town. I'll talk. I'll I'll talk to you another time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. Okay. Laurent, do you have anything to add to today's topic? Not really, but uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a really good talk. Okay. Yes, we don't talk much about Mahayana versus Theravada, so I'm glad that we were able to explore that a little bit. Marcus, do you have anything to say about it? Because you know enough. You know what I'm talking about. You can see yeah, that because can, there's enough Mahayana. Thing. Yeah, there's enough um, Mahayana Bhikkhu, in Thailand. Bhikkhu Buddha before he died, he was reading a lot of um, Zen, I believe, in Mahayana. Mm-hmm. Mm. Not just before he died, he was into them for years. That mm. in fact, the Chaya area where uh, Watson Mok is located, uh, 1300 years ago, 700 AD through 912 AD, it was Mahayana. Then in fact, Chaya is a World Heritage uh, site. They've got stupas, Mahayana mm. stupas that old here in Thailand. They dig up statuary from time to time and carry it to the Watts. And so there's all kinds of Mahayana statuary in this area that's more than a thousand years old, but the people don't take it to the, I mean, they, some of them do. That's been an old problem in Thailand of relics showing up at a pawn shop in Bangkok. But they still have quite a lot of that stuff still left here in southern Thailand. But there's a lot of Mahayana down here. Then, in fact, Chaya was part of the Angor and the Srijaya civilizations. The, civiliza the Srijaya was in uh, Indonesia uh, vicinity, today's Indonesia. So Mahayana and Theravada have been sharing each other's situations for all this time. And like I said, the only real difference was whether you're going to bend the rules happily or bend the rules and lie about it. And the Theravada chose to bend the rules and lie about it. And the Mahayana just bend the rules left, right and center. And there's disadvantages to both. Let's, uh, uh, in, <laughs> it's actually a, a worthwhile topic. Yeah. But the basic core of the teaching of the Buddha in the Mahayana and the Theravada and in the Zen is all the same. Which means to sit down and shut up and just sit. And that's all there is to the Zen. Yeah, that's um, Soto Zen. Zazen just means just sitting. Just sitting. Yeah, you're already enlightened. Just sit. <laughs> just sit there long enough. You'll figure out you're already enlightened. Then you'll shut up. You don't need anything. Just sit. And pretty soon we recognize, yeah, I can just sit. I don't need anything. And so all of the teachings of the Buddha built right in there to in the Zen, they just leave out some of the steps that the Theravada know all about. 
So you'll find someone in the Theravada that'll understand Zen faster than you'll find someone in Zen who understands Theravada. But we've got some. And in fact, the two that I can think of would be Gil Fonsdale. He started in Zen and then came to Thailand, and so did um, uh, Emmanuel Sherman, the guy who died here uh, on this island. Okay, so those are two guys that started in Zen and, and wound up in Theravada. But normally it's the Theravada who understands Zen and then just, I'll take that too. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's really all the same. It's uh, it's all just joyful, just sitting back and enjoy the fact you're still alive. Put your sword down. So anyway, guys, does anybody else have anything to say? How about you, Jesus? You got anything to say? Well, I have, I have a whole list of things I have to ask you next call. <laughs> I have been watching you right. I didn't know whether that was inside or bullshit or no, now no. we know it's a bunch of questions <laughs> there's a bunch of questions here yes and i i read some some somewhere recently i don't know who the author but it says there is only one buddhism that's it well that's you what i've been talking about all this whole hour yeah. that's all i've said it's there's only, only one buddhism. buddhism the teaching of the buddha goes all over the place it's leaking into yeah. psychology it's leaked into the Catholic Church several times. The Buddhism has flooded your basement. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, has had a, quite an impact. I mean, they thought that they had killed it out in India, but all they did was just squish it, and it just like a fruit, it just went <laughs> all over India. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, this has been a great talk. I've really enjoyed it. Anybody got any last things to say? Yeah, excellent. No. no. All right, and how things on the island over there? Laurent's only about 20 miles from here. Um, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, just uh, I visited the Wat today. Um, it's not on the map, and it was uh, yeah on the mountain. And with there, there was a few uh, monks, and uh, it was uh, like really away from the main uh, main street. A really nice place. Yeah. Did you make it to Wat Pen Boy yet? Not yet. That, not yet. Okay. Yeah. I, I'd glad to, I'd be good to hear about that. Yeah. So. I'll send a picture. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. This has been a really good talk. I've really enjoyed today. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Andrew, Andrew, see you later. Yeah, I have a lot of questions for later also. Yes, <laughs> good. Right, thank you. Ciao, ciao.